Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Today is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, and today over the next half an hour we're going to be going in-depth into three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. If, for those that are new to the Roundup, what we do each week on Monday, we have a free newsletter we send out direct to your inbox that you can subscribe to at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, or you can get the link to the most recent edition of this week's newsletter in the comments section on our Facebook page where we're doing this live chat. We also put the links to all the stories we cover in related to these questions in that comment section on the Facebook page. So if you're watching on repeat on Facebook uh, or on demand on YouTube, you can link back to our most recent edition of the newsletter at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. So what we do each week, uh, we, when we go in depth into these three questions, we see themes and some of the news stories we've been covering, and we put those together into these three questions that we'll do today. So let's get right to them. First question of the day, how significant is social media's hold on our lives? And we, every once in a while, we go in depth into social media and to, to give a sense on really where the state of, state of play as it relates to social media in the world today. And we all know that social media is dominating our lives, uh, probably more than we care to admit. Some of us might take our social media, um, per, uh, social media purges or social media hiatuses or holidays for a while. Uh, some might swear off social, certain social media channels altogether because they just feel they're getting too toxic, whatever the case may be, uh, or just getting too overly invested in, in those platforms. But I bring this topic up every once in a while because uh, it is important to remind ourselves not just what, how we experience social media here in the United States, but really the global impact of this phenomenon on our world and particularly on students, future students that may be looking at coming to the United States, coming to our countries for higher education and the impact this platform, these various platforms can have on uh, decisions that's in, that students make. And that's why we call our business social media and international education. Those are my two passion areas, and those are my areas since 2005 when I first got on Facebook and started using YouTube and Twitter a year later. Those are the things that have become such an important part of my philosophy when it comes to recruiting students uh, in international education in general, leveraging the tools you have available to reach your target audiences. So let's uh, get right to it, our, the hold that social media has on our lives on a global perspective. And again, that's what we're trying to do here with the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup is provide that global perspective on how things impact what we do in our daily lives in our field of study, not just in uh, what uh, our personal lives, but how they impact our, our profession. So the State of Digital is a report that comes out every quarter from We Are Social. Now this is a team that popped up about four or five years ago, uh, based in London, and then but has now have offices worldwide uh, that do social media research, go really in depth into the impact it has on different countries, the world around us, all of that. Uh, they uh, do quarterly reports that this is referring to the State of Digital in October 2021. And some of the kind of the headlines of this most recent survey is that uh, more than two thirds of the world's population now uses a mobile phone today. And that includes, two thirds includes 
kids under under the age of 13 that might not may or may not have access to a mobile phone yet. So that's an increase of almost 2% by almost 100 million people over the last 12 months. So we're talking about 5.29 billion people around the world have a mobile phone, at least one. And that's out of a total world population of 7.89. So there's only 2.6 billion people in the world that don't use a mobile phone today. Uh, now, when it comes to uh, internet users, we're talking about a very large and increasingly large percentage of the world's population uh, of, uh, are now have, have access to the internet every year, uh, every day. And that number is at 4.88 billion. So uh, that's increased more than 220 million in, over the last year. So we're talking about 61%, almost 62% of the world's population now has access to the internet. And what does that mean uh, for their uh, access to knowledge? And maybe some not so uh, not so much uh, in, informative uh, content out there. Uh, the bottom line of this uh, of this uh, report uh, they covered digital or mobile usage, did, did internet access, and social media. Uh, the act, number of active social media users on the planet today is now 4.55 billion. That's almost 58 percent of the world's population are active on social media right now. And that's uh, big numbers, obviously, mind-boggling numbers, and hard to get our heads around most of them when we think about it. But what's, what's really important, I think, is just how increasingly social media is still outpacing uh, internet usage, mobile usage. Uh, we're talking an added 400 million people on social media as a, a year on year, and that's compared to 100 million uh, more internet users or mobile phone users, 200 million more uh, people accessing the internet. Uh, 400 million was now, uh, uh, that's a 10% uh, growth year on year that are active on social media. So that's why I, as I mentioned earlier, why social media is an such an important part of what my company does, what my consulting is about, is really taking a look at the, where, where the students are, uh, what platforms they're on, and I know for my colleagues uh, in the U.S., um, we in the, in the United States, many of us have kind of gone away from using Facebook uh, from, as a recruitment tool for domestic audiences because they've moved to Instagram, they're on TikTok now and other platforms. So it's become less important uh, for domestic audiences. But internationally, and this is something I've been preaching for years, even when Facebook started to take a decline in a number of college-age students in the United States back in probably 2013, 2014, we started to see uh, that's when Facebook growth was exploding around the world. And wherever Facebook has really taken off, it's been the youth. It's been uh, the college-age population, really, that have really driven that initial growth. And yes, as, as social media markets mature, tend, the youth tend to migrate on to other platforms. But do they ever really shut off social? Uh, to Facebook is, is, is a key. And I, I, would, I would caution you to uh, guard against go, moving away from uh, Facebook as a tool to really t reach your target audiences. And I say that for a number of reasons, because one of... When you look at uh, the growth of social media platforms over the years and the current most used social media platforms around the world, you look at the top five, the top five social media platforms that exist in the world. Four of those are Facebook properties. Facebook, YouTube, 
WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger. Those are the top five social media platforms used currently in the world. Facebook is, is nearing three billion people that are using Facebook. Uh, they're 2.895 billion right now. YouTube is at 2.29 uh, billion. WhatsApp is at 2 billion. Uh, Instagram is at 1.4 billion. Facebook Messenger is at 1.3 billion. After Facebook Messenger, we, we go down to WeChat, 1.25 billion, so still huge numbers. So WeChat as a market, we're talking about not only in China, where probably close to a billion people in China are now on social media. We also know that there are over a billion people in China now have access and are using social media platforms. WeChat is their number one. Um, primarily because it is kind of all things social media. It allows you to do everything from what you do on Facebook, what you could do on Twitter, on YouTube, but also is a PayPal, is a Venmo, those kinds of things as well. It is uh, kind of an all-in-one app that really dominates uh, uh, folks' lives in China and also the Chinese diaspora. And those that are trying to access the Chinese market have become active on, on WeChat. My wife, who teaches uh, English, uh, uh, teaches video lessons in English, uh, she is on WeChat and she keeps in touch with some of her students that way and some of her students' parents via WeChat. Uh, after WeChat, TikTok is now over a billion users globally. And that's that really speaks to their dramatic rise over the last couple of years to one of the top seven uh, social media platforms in the world with over a billion users nowadays. So we're talking about, that's that's even TikTok, and this is key, TikTok is at over a billion users without having access to India right now because it's still blocked there because of ongoing uh, battles between India and China and some of their uh, trade wars and social media wars. So we're talking about 15% of the global internet population uh, are, are now on um, uh, that, that are in India don't can't use TikTok right now, so we're talking about a number of huge numbers in in social media, and we look at the ups and downs, and we talk about China, and we've always talked about China as a kind of different beast altogether when it comes to social media, because we know none of the uh, U.S. major U.S. platforms, the Facebooks, YouTubes, Twitters, are accessible in in China. Uh, what you do know is you have the WeChats, you have the Youku uh, a version of YouTube, uh, you have the uh, you uh, you have uh, QQ, uh, which is a, a more of a, a messenger type app, uh, and others that uh, Duban um, and other other platforms like that. Uh, and TikTok is a Chinese platform initially. It goes by uh, Duban in China, but uh, you see now uh, a, a very different landscape in China. And of those U.S. platforms uh, that are not accessible there, you had had, up until recently, LinkedIn had been accessible in China uh, without uh, VPN access to get to it. And you've seen, we've covered a story this past week uh, where LinkedIn has basically pulled out of China due to increasing regulatory environments and challenges in operating within uh, the country. So uh, there's another story that we'll cover next week in, the, in our newsletter from We Are Social about the reasons why LinkedIn is moving out of China. But uh, because of the challenging operating environment, LinkedIn is no longer able to, to uh, be accessible to the Chinese audience. So 
if there's now more than ever, it's important for uh, U.S. institutions that are looking to get into that particular market to be looking at uh, re and reinvesting in that China, China, the Chinese ecosystem of social media, uh, particularly WeChat. If you're going to do nothing else in China, be on WeChat if you're looking to reach students there. But that just speaks to the huge impact when over a billion people in the China, in China itself are on social media that you want to have that presence on the platforms that they're using. And WeChat is certainly the place to be uh, among others that you may want to consider depending on how well positioned you are in that country. So uh, we'll, how, how significant is social media's hold on our lives? Personally, um, I, I spend much of my uh, free time when I'm not with family and not working on social media. Uh, some of it's research, but some of it's, uh, some of it's just keeping up with friends. Uh, amazing how uh, those, those questions you can put out on, on social media really help you connect or reconnect with uh, friends from long ago. Now that social media is entering uh, adolescence, been, uh, been in, in around 13, 14, 15 years now, uh, they're becoming young adults uh, uh, as social platforms. So it's interesting to see how, how that all develops. But as a whole, part, of, part of the answering that question, I have significant hold personally, professionally, it does have significant holds on our lives, I think, and can, depending on how well you embrace it uh, as a tool to reach students as well. So that's our first question. Our next question, will the November 8th international travel restrictions that uh, the Biden administration recently put in place, effective November 8th, uh, will, how will, will they be modified uh, for international students? Because as of right now, the guidance that came down on October 15th has said that beginning November 8th, any international visitors to the United States must have proof of vaccination in order to enter the country legally. So if you're incoming students, say students who couldn't get a visa appointment in time to come in the fall that have been doing online or remote learning now for what would be a year and a half, uh, that are still trying to come for the first time to your campus uh, or come back uh, for, the, uh, since the, for the first time since the pandemic hit, or the, those that want to start new, that maybe we're taking a semester off and say, okay, I want to come, when I can come in person, that's when I want to come. For those that were making plans to be here in January, to start the spring term, to return to campus, to be there for the first time, if they haven't been vaccinated in their home country, they're not going to be let in as the, as the restrictions currently stand today. As of November 8th, they will not be allowed in. Obviously, students for the spring term can't come yet because you can't come more than 30 days before your program start date. If you're starting in early to mid-January, early December would be the earliest if you're starting early January that you could legally enter the country on an F-1 visa. So that's after this November 8th deadline. So unless those students have already gotten into the country, maybe late arrivals for the fall, and they, if they haven't been vaccinated yet, as of, as of today, October 27th, they will not be able to enter the country in the spring. How have you ch communicated that to your incoming students? Have you communicated that to your incoming students yet for the spring? Or are you waiting to hopefully get an exemption down the road? Because uh, this is something that is, is mission critical. And this, this, because we've been existing in such a uh, fluid situation, frankly, when it comes to travel restrictions since the beginning of the Trump administration in January of 2017, there have been regular 
changes to U.S. government policy, whether it re related to Muslim travel uh, travel bans on the first day on, in office that uh, the Trump administration rolled out, to changes in uh, when the pandemic hit, to you have to be, uh, you can't be in person. If you're not, if your school isn't in person, you can't come. And then that was quickly changed a week later. Uh, you've seen a number of these uh, situations occur that are really putting students in limbo uh, that had planned to be in, uh, in the United States to begin their studies or to continue their studies. So keeping your eye on these things and being able to communicate effectively and coherently with your incoming students during this time of transition it's also going to impact those. Most international students, if they've been in the United States, maybe arrived in the fall, were able to get vaccinated, they should be okay. Some campuses are now implementing, because of the Biden administration's uh, vaccine mandate for all institutions or employers that have received government funds, some are now interpreting that to be, most are, I should say, are interpreting that to mean that you've got to have your, your, your students, faculty, staff uh, all vaccinated as well. Some are making those effective for the spring term uh, in order to continue continue employment, continue studies, whatever the case may be. Uh, so it's important that you're keeping up with this, uh, these changes that will impact your future students. And you need to be communicating these changes to your students on a regular basis. Are you hesitant to, ch to, change, to communicate because you're hoping there's going to be a, a modification to this policy, as there have been many times over the last four or five years? Maybe, that's wise, but how long do you let it go? Students that are applying for visa interviews in the next, uh, they can be now applying for visas uh, for it to come in January. How are they being informed? Are they being informed by you? Uh, do we know anything yet about how consulates are informing them? Are they are consulates abroad saying to these students that are planning to come in January and they're getting, having their visa interviews, getting their stamps and their passports? Are they being told uh, that? you will need to be vaccinated before you can enter the United States. And is that even possible where they are? Uh, and we've um, a colleague at, um, at the Chronicle, uh, many of you know Karen Fisher, she has a weekly newsletter as well. Uh, she does these uh, narrative stories on, on, on the larger pictures on some of these uh, issues that we're dealing with. And she did one this past week on vaccination rates in different countries and how in uh, China it's 75%, 76% are fully vaccinated. But in Vietnam, it's only 20%. Uh, in some of the other major major uh, source countries for students, that's only 30% or less. So how are those students who are planning to come, how are they going to be able to access vaccines uh, between now and the time classes begin in January, given the current regulations as they stand? So this is something we're going to need to keep our eyes on because it's a very fluid situation, and it's one that can uh, kind of throws everything up in the air. And uh, in addition to the travel.state.gov page that announced this on October 15th, I'm putting the link to that in the chat, uh, but I've also got two stories, one from the Pine News where clarification is being sought by the U.S. higher ed community, uh, and then the official letter from ACE and 37 other uh, higher ed associations to uh, the uh, coordinator of the COVID-19 response at the White House and also uh, the director of the CDC, because those are the two elements that are two government bodies or related uh, associations that are impacting this policy. Uh, it's not DHS, it's not state. Uh, they're not referenced in this letter, but certainly the, the decision to make the vaccination requirement beginning November 8th uh, coordinated by the White House and on, uh, in 
in consult consultation with the CDC. So those three, uh, please take a look at the, the travel statement document uh, from Department of State uh, related to visa entrance, uh, vaccination requirement for entrance. Look at the Pi News story on uh, what the higher ed community is doing and some of their positions on this, and, uh, as well as the uh, letter that ACE and the higher ed association community have written to uh, CDC and the coordinator of the COVID-19 response in the White House. Those really are informative ones because it really puts in jeopardy some of the, the growth that uh, many institutions have been working towards for the spring to finally get their international students' numbers back to where they were pre-pandemic and hopefully grow a little bit. But this is certainly throwing a major wrench in those works. I referenced a couple, couple weeks ago conversations I was having with the university uh, that um, I'm consulting with on how um, this is before this announcement came out that we had had a meeting early October about uh, their new implementing their new vaccine mandate uh, for uh, the spring term. They're actually requiring that students show proof of proof of vaccination before they can register for um, register for classes for the spring term and the implications that would have on incoming or returning international students back to campus. And we, there was a cross-campus-wide uh, initiative to kind of what does the communication need to look like, what's the best way to register these students, all of these factors, when, do, when can they arrive, because they were going to provide students access to any of the three U.S.-approved vaccines. They would accept students that got any WHO-approved vaccine. But they, um, if, they had, if they were able to get it before they came, but for those that couldn't, which was going to be the greater majority of them, uh, they gave them the option, okay, if you want Moderna, you have to arrive 29 days before camp uh, classes start so that on the 28th day, you can get your first shot and the first day of class, you can get your second shot. For those who wanted the Pfizer vaccine, 22 days arrive before your programs start. So on the 21st day, first shot first day of school, second shot. And five, uh, for the J&J, &J, uh, Johnson Johnson, they could come day before classes and get their shot on the first day. So uh, putting together that policy and that communication plan, how to get that information out to the newly admitted international students coming for spring or returning students that were expected to come for spring, that, that was significant in terms of uh, having that conversation. And those are the kinds of conversations that frankly need to be going on on your campuses, and particularly in light of this decision that in, in the, within the course of the next two weeks, new international students will need to be vaccinated unless there's some, some change that's made or some accommodation or loophole that can be uh, added in uh, to this uh, travel, new travel policy. So we'll see where that goes, but it's certainly one that is going to uh, potentially throw a major wrench into uh, U.S. institutions and their ability to enroll students for the spring term. Now, we'll get a little perspective on this in our third uh, question today, a global perspective on this and how other countries are dealing with this when we get to our next question about Australia. But I, I certainly think if you haven't had these conversations already with uh, your, within your admissions offices and, inter and international student offices, they should be happening and the relevant departments on campus that need to be a part of that conversation. So uh, please make that a priority in the coming weeks that you, you if you haven't already, get that conversation going on campus. Uh, impact, uh, have that impact your, um, your leadership at your institution, government relations folks, get this on their radar that they can elevate that through elect their elected representatives, whether uh, House, Senate, govern, governors, that type of thing that can put pressure on the administration to make a change to accommodate 
international students. Because the reality is any institution worth their salt now is realizing that these uh, international students need to be taken care of, uh, need to be provided for, and having access to uh, vaccinations is almost a given now for any student that wants one can get one. Uh, that's kind of the general policy I think many institutions are taking up. Uh, realistically, it's the right thing to do. So the by making an exemption and saying to the government, hey, we're going to get these students vaccinated once they get to campus because they want it, we want it. For those that are still looking to come to the United States, that's their priority. That If they can't get it in country where they are, they want to get it as soon as they get to the United States. So uh, that's certainly going to be a, a, a very significant topic of, of discussion and should be on your campuses. So I wish you luck with that one. Now our third question, our final question of the day. How is Australia planning to reopen? Uh, this is a, a, a topic that for many of us in international higher ed that are familiar with, uh, with how other countries have been managing the pandemic uh, and the impact that's had on their international education numbers and their institutions, will know that Australia is one of the three major destinations uh, after China and uh, New Zealand that have had basically closed borders uh, since the pandemic struck in uh, early 2020. And as a result, they've lost, their academic year starts February, March. So you have 2020 was almost a complete bust. Mo many, most of their students uh, were started their studies remotely. 2021 has been a complete bust. And there's chance that 2022 is gonna be, uh, it, won't be it won't be back to full steam beginning of uh, the, the academic year in 2022 yet. Uh, because it, it will take time to um, to reopen. But there are four kind of levels of this that we're talking about for reopening. Uh, we've heard of, and over the last two or three, four months, there have been uh, the individual states in Australia have had to have their own reentry plans uh, approved by the government, uh, the federal government. Uh, in Australia before they could be launched. There, many of them are doing pilot programs starting November, December this year to readmit international students that had been uh, that had been, or that had been studying here, had gone home, but weren't able to get back into the country when borders got shut in early 2020. So those are the kind of the initial pilot projects. We're talking 500 a month, basically, was what they're looking at for many of these state programs, uh, which also involve quarantines. Uh, so that uh, even if you're vaccinated, they're going to be requiring quarantines for these uh, for these individuals that are uh, coming back in. But one of the one that's only going to happen on a broader scale nationally. Uh, these are the four levels. So outside of estate plans that are the pilot plans that are starting um, early next month, uh, you have uh, Australia's kind of the national rule has been once Australia's national vaccinate. And this is from an ICEF monitor report that kind of. Uh, covers all of these things in depth. Uh, that first, Australia's national vaccination rate has to hit 80%. Uh, that is, they're currently at 70% and they're working their way towards 80%. That's expected to hit 80% sometime in November. Once that happens, the borders will reopen for Australian travelers. So allowing Australians to come back into the country and Australians to go abroad. So that's that's the kind of the reopening part where it's beyond just the pilot projects that the uh, individual states will have starting in November, with small numbers and quarantine facilities, all of that. 
The next step is vaccinated uh, international students and skilled migrant migrants are the next priority after allowing international Australian citizens to come and go. Uh, the third level is additional vaccines in the WHO sphere are, have been added to the approved list of uh, vaccination jabs that uh, Australia will accept. Some of that have been political. Uh, Sinovac uh, was one of the two Chinese uh, vaccines that had not been approved but now has been added. And there's a lot of political things going on, as we know, between Australia and China. Uh, but that uh, Shield is the uh, for those who are not familiar with the different lingos, the AstraZeneca-Oxford uh, vaccine uh, from England, from the UK, uh, is in, has been marketed in other countries as Covishield, and particularly in India. Those uh, gives access to um, that now vac that vaccine and Sinovac are now approved for Australia. So that's opening the door to more students. But the vaccines are when we look at what's happening in the United States, the vaccinations are going to be required for students to get into Australia. So that's uh, interesting to see that develop, how that will look for international students moving forward. And we're, we're fretting about that, trying to get exemptions uh, for international students to the, to the November 8th ruling that's coming out that will mandate uh, vaccines for, new, uh, for newly arriving uh, international students. Uh, so... Uh, here's the quarantine re restrictions. So for many Australians, according to the ICEF report, uh, a seven-day at-home quarantine will be required for returning Australians who are vaccinated, while those who aren't will be required to undergo a 14-day quarantine period in designated hotels, so not, they can't do that at home if they're returning, if they're not vaccinated. So those are, those are the challenges there. Uh, we see uh, in terms of uh, quarantine, similar quarantine rules will likely apply, uh, though they would all be hotel-based for, uh, for international students. Uh, and uh, in fact, I think, yeah, I think most of them will be... Uh, uh, COVID Shield is, yeah, uh, the one outside of, uh, outside of that that uh, is available. That's, uh, that's one in India that is, most, most students have been impacted. Uh, so there's there's real uh, interesting. Uh, they're calling it a patchwork of initiatives, comparing the, what the states are trying to do with their pilot projects and what the federal government's trying to do. So uh, the border closures are trying to fly, fly back in students who pays for that. Uh, that it's really there's been a lot of different issues along the way uh, related to quarantine as well. So we'll we'll see what happens as as their borders tend to reopen. And again, it's going to be vaccinated internationals only that will be able to come in. So we'll see uh, how, that hap how that impacts Australia and how if, if the greater majority of ones of students are trying to get in Australia will have one of those vaccines, then maybe that bodes well for us but in the US, but in terms of who can get them. But I, I, don't, I haven't seen really major no, any, any major uh, numbers or surveys on international students coming to the US, whether they've been able to get vaccinated yet or, or gonna be able to before they might come in January. But that would be one of those things we'll certainly, as soon as we get some data like that, we'll certainly share that with you. Hopefully you're communicating with your incoming students that are looking to start in January and having those conversations. Have you been vaccinated yet? Just to get a sense or Will you be able to get one before you arrive? Because you, maybe that's the way you approach this question with this November 8th policy, just to get a sense of how many of your incoming students are going to be impacted by this. 
So one of the things related to Australia and I, why I covered how Australia is planning to reopen is they realize, the government realizes, certainly the higher ed community realizes that they've taken a, a massive hits uh, to their reputation, to uh, the willingness of students to wait and continue to take classes online and with the hope of being able to come in person, uh, that uh, they realize they've got some rebuilding of trust to do. And one of the things that they're looking at is uh, a, a new article uh, dropping the link into the comments section that Australia is mulling student vi study visa flexibility to incentivize students. And they have a point system in Australia towards migration uh, for uh, professional year programs, extending post-study work rights for offshore students in flexible new study, study visa situations. That was one thing that we had seen many destinations, Canada did it, UK did it, Australia did it, that they, and US as well, that students that were abroad for, uh, for, for since the pandemic hit, that were trying to come back, uh, they were still able to keep their student status, even though they weren't physically in the, in the country, as it counts towards their um, uh, post-study work opportunity time. Though in the U.S., that's practical training time, OPT. So uh, you were, they were still able to maintain their, their status uh, uh, and be considered in status and working towards graduation and degree requirements so that they could still do their OPT in the U.S. after graduation and China, or Canada, UK, and Australia certainly allowed those exemptions for their students who were, were stuck abroad as well. So the migration points piece is for those that are looking to, because they, they do tie uh, st study and work uh, in Australia. They do it exceptionally well in, in Canada. There's a uh, new post-study work visa in, in the UK, or renewed post-study work visa in the UK to give students two years of um, work opportunity post-graduation. So all of that is happening, but Australia is certainly recognizing, unlike the UK and, the, and Canada, the US that had, had been able to stay open, uh, though didn't have huge numbers, uh, in, certainly in the US case, uh, they, Australia realizes they, they need to regain the upper hand when it comes to attracting skilled migrants that come to first study who want to then stay and work. So that's, that's something that Australia realizes they're doing, and it'd be interesting to see if the U.S. ever gets to that position. Certainly, it's not going to get there until that dual intent status is, is, is adopted for F1 students that can give them that flexibility as well uh, that can impact post-study opportunities beyond just their OPT time. So there's a lot going on, obviously. We'll keep you posted in the weeks and months to come as these stories develop, but wanted to certainly give you our thoughts on what uh, the impact of this November 8th ruling means for the U.S. And, uh, and how other countries are handling it. So important distinctions we all need to keep in mind as we do our work each day. So until next time, have a wonderful week, and hope you have a productive uh, time in the next uh, few weeks preparing for International Education Week. More on that to come later. Cheers.